On the morning of September 11th, 2001, President George W. Bush was in Sarasota, Florida, at an elementary school listening to a child read. And it was at that moment when his chief of staff, Andy Card, came up next to him and whispered in his ear, telling him that a second plane had crashed into the World Trade Center in New York City. America is under attack, he told the president. In the minutes that followed, confusion and fear spread across the world. Many of us got phone calls and text messages telling us to turn on our TVs so that we could watch the news unfold in real time. Sarah and I were brand new married, didn't even have a TV. Got a phone call from one of my best friends telling me the news, and so we turned on our little clock radio by the side of our bed so that we could listen and then soon went to places where we could watch the news unfold, and we sat there all day trying to understand what was happening. We wanted to hear more. We wanted to know more. We were waiting for answers to questions that we didn't even know how to ask. What happened on 9-11 happens in more personal ways whenever a tragedy strikes closer to home. When someone we know is rushed to the hospital. When someone we love has died. When a job suddenly ends, when life is interrupted, we collapse in on ourselves. We seek protection from the outside world. We want answers. We're confused. We're scared. And that's exactly the situation that we find the disciples in tonight. It's the evening of the first day of the week, verse 19 says. The day that Jesus rose from the dead, but the disciples are confused. Already reports have reached them that Jesus is actually alive. And they've heard even directly from Mary Magdalene who saw the Lord and who talked to the Lord. But death worked in the first century just like it works in the 21st century. If you die, you stay dead. So what were they supposed to do with these reports that their friend, their rabbi, their teacher is actually alive? The disciples are also afraid. The door is locked, verse 19 says, for fear of the Jews. At the same moment that Andy Card was whispering into President Bush's ear, the Secret Service were rushing the First Lady, Laura Bush, from Capitol Hill. And she was taken directly to the Secret Service headquarters. Another team was dispatched to the college that Jenna and Barbara Bush were attending. And they were taken quickly away from their classrooms to a nearby hotel where Secret Service members stood guard at the door. Vice President Cheney was rushed from the White House into the bunker. When you scared, you're run away. When you're scared, you lock the door behind you. You douse the lights. You speak in whispers. If someone is out to get you, you don't make it easier for them to find you. Ten confused and fearful men. But Jesus found them. 
In verse 19, it says that Jesus came and stood among them. Just like his body passed through those grave clothes, so too his body passed through those locked doors, those walls, into the room where the disciples had assembled. He literally materialized in their midst. And suddenly, the confusion and the fear of the first Easter turns to joy. But that joy, that wasn't a foregone conclusion. Let me ask you, have you ever been confronted by someone that you betrayed? Have you ever turned the corner at Costco and come face to face with someone you did wrong? The disciples had abandoned Jesus. The disciples had betrayed Jesus. And suddenly, Jesus is in their midst. But instead of condemnation, Jesus extends peace. Shalom. (laughs) Telling someone shalom is still today a common way to greet someone in Hebrew. But the greeting that Jesus uses here actually transforms this common word of peace into a declaration of pardon. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is expressing to the disciples here. He extends that peace twice. To a room full of confused and fearful men, assuring them that their sins are forgiven and removing any doubt, any fear that remained. Then the disciples were glad, verse 20 says. The sorrow of the farewell, the confusion and the fear of the crucifixion, their own guilt and shame, it all gives way to the joy of their reunion. But Jesus didn't appear to his disciples merely to give them joy. He is there to send them on a mission. This passage is John's version of the Great Commission. You and I are probably more familiar with the Great Commission as it's recorded for us at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. All authority, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Well, John's version is slightly different. And there are three elements of John's version that I want to explore with you this morning. The first is found in verse 21. Look at verse 21 with me. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so even so I am sending you. Jesus connects his mission to this new mission. Just as Jesus was sent 
by the Father, so he now is sending the disciples. Their mission is not new. It's not some new thing that Jesus has dreamt up. It is part of the same mission of Jesus. The Son was sent to do the will of the Father. And He completed His task of rescue and redemption. But now He is deputizing His disciples to go in His name and with His authority to announce the work that He has completed. The first thing that I want you to see is that the disciples' mission is an extension of Jesus' work. Jesus is still at work through the disciples. The second thing that I want you to see is in verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, if you are a careful reader of the Bible, if you are a student of Scripture, you already have questions. Because you're going to remember back in John chapter 16 that Jesus told his disciples that he had to go away so that he could send the Holy Spirit, the helper, to them. And from your Bible reading, you're going to know that in Acts 1, before Jesus ascends to heaven, he tells the disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit would be poured out on the church. But here, it seems like Jesus is imparting the Holy Spirit. So what is this? Is this a mini Pentecost? Is this a preliminary outpouring of the Spirit or is it something else? Part of my job is to figure these things out. I've looked at 10 commentaries this week and they all say something different. Nobody really knows what's going on here. Everyone has kind of their own theory, their own idea about how this applies or fits in with those other passages. But I think that there are two things that we should be able to understand about this, even if we don't understand exactly how this pouring out or breathing out of the Spirit connects to other passages. The first is this. Two things to know about this. Number one, interestingly, this word for breathing out It's the only place that this word is found in the New Testament. And the only other place that it's used is in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. And there it's used in Genesis chapter 2 when God breathes into Adam, making him alive. Okay? So part of what we think is going on here is that, as Paul will later say, Jesus is the first fruits of the new creation. And as the head of the new creation, he is breathing life into his disciples. This is the dawn of a new day. And he is empowering them and equipping them with the new life that he received. This heavenly life. And he's giving that to them 
as they get ready to go out on this mission. And that's the second thing that I want you to see. Jesus is tying the mission that he's giving to the disciples with the Holy Spirit. What is the natural habitat of disciples apart from the Holy Spirit? A locked room. That's where they're going to stay. But with the Holy Spirit, these ten men are empowered. They are given power beyond what they can naturally understand to accomplish the mission that Jesus has given them. So whatever else is going on with this passage, there are two things that I want you to grab hold of. The first is that Jesus is the first fruits of the new creation. He is breathing new life into his followers. And the second thing is that it is absolutely imperative that they fulfill their mission in the power of the Holy Spirit and not in their own power. So two things so far that we've seen. This mission is connected to the same mission Jesus was on. They need the Holy Spirit. And the third part of John's great commission is found in verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Well, this is a very similar thing to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16 and Matthew chapter 18 when he tells the disciples that he is giving them the keys of the kingdom in order to exercise authority within the church. But how is this forgiving or withholding forgiveness, how is that connected to the mission that Jesus is giving the disciples? Well, it's simply this. The proclamation of the gospel leads to a great division of humanity. We must all be confronted with the decisive choice to accept in faith the grace of God made manifest in the sending of his Son, or we will remain in our sins. And we will be subject to divine judgment. Folks, this is the unique work of the church. The church is often corralled into trying to do a lot of different things. Trying to speak to a lot of different issues. The job description of the church grows in every generation. Tell me who to vote for. Tell me how to raise my kids. Give me just something that I can encourage myself with this week, Pastor. But the one thing that Jesus gives to the church that is central to the church's existence is to assure you that your sins are forgiven. Only the church is the voice that God, only through the church can we hear the voice that God gives us to assure us that our, that our sins are forgiven, especially when everyone and everything in us condemns us. But it's also only in the church that the voice is given to the world to sound the warning 
of the judgment to come. This mission is central to John's explanation of the Great Commission. This mission that is an extension of Jesus' mission through the power of the Spirit to do one primary thing to address the forgiveness of sins. Jesus found ten confused and fearful men. And he equipped them and empowered them for ministry. And that work didn't end with their deaths. They, in turn, passed down that apostolic deposit to other faithful men who are called to be pastors and elders, called to shepherd the flock of God. And brothers and sisters, in every generation since Christ's resurrection, there has been a church on earth to continue this work to fulfill the mission that God has given it. Well, Eric, I'm not a pastor. I'm not an elder. What does this mission have to do with me? Let me give you three things to take home today. Three ways that this mission is your mission. The first is that I want you to remember that we are in a season as a church where we are asking you to prayerfully consider men who can serve as elders and deacons in the church. Part of the way that you fulfill your part of this mission is by engaging in that process. Would you spend this week meditating not only on John 20, but also on the material that we've given you to think about who God is calling to be elders and deacons in the church. They're going to take up this mission as part of their calling to serve the church. But part of your mission is to identify who those men are. And now, with Bryce's impending departure, we're going to be searching for a new pastor who can join us in this mission. Please be praying for that process. That's the first application. That's the first thing that I want you to take from this. Is you have a job to do this week. The second is this. Even though I'm asking you to nominate elders and deacons, even though I'm asking you to pray for a pastoral search, I don't want you to think that this mission is just for the professionals. You are also called to participate in the same mission that God has given to the church. The context is going to be different. In the church, it's general and it's public. In your life, it's personal and it's often private. But all of us have the opportunity to talk about Jesus' work. We can do it at the dinner table. We can do it on a camping trip. We can do it during our lunch break. We can do it on the phone. All of us have people in our lives who need to hear the gospel. And when we share the good news of Jesus, we are participating in the same mission that Jesus gave his disciples. That may not be your job, but it's certainly your responsibility and it's certainly your privilege. It's your privilege to do in your own life what God has given the church to do. 
We heard it even this morning, right? If you cannot sing like angels, if you cannot preach like Paul, you can tell the love of Jesus and say he died for all. Don't forget, if this was left up to you and your own power, you'd be standing behind a locked door. You wouldn't want to go out. You couldn't feel like you could go out. You wouldn't have anything to say. But the same spirit that Jesus imparts to his disciples is poured out on the entire church in Acts chapter 2. And if you're a Christian, that same spirit is yours today. See guys, those ten fearful, confused men, they weren't just encouraged that they got to see Jesus again. They were actually empowered to go out and do something different. They were given supernatural gifts to do the work that God called them to do. And in exactly the same way, you are also empowered by that same Spirit. God will use your faltering words. God will use your missteps. God will use your weak faith to communicate the message of grace to people in your life, God will use you through the power of the Spirit to increase His kingdom. Finally, last point, third thing that I want you to take away from this today. And I think this is the most important point. Don't ever forget that you are a beneficiary of this mission. If you trust in Jesus for your salvation this morning, it's because someone else was faithful to this mission. And they told you about the work of Jesus for you. Maybe it was a parent or a beloved family member, a neighbor, a friend, a mentor. Somebody told you about Jesus. And that's not just an intellectual faith that when you die, you go to heaven. It's a day-by-day reliance and assurance that your sins are forgiven. You see, every week at this church, in the absolution that I pronounce after our confession of sin, through the preaching of the Word, in the Lord's Supper, at the benediction, every week in this church, we've designed practically the entire service around this main idea to communicate to you that you are right with God. That you can leave this place knowing that you are right with God. That it's not a confusing thing for you. That you can know that your sins are forgiven. That the peace that Jesus won for us belongs to you. Friends, don't think of God up in heaven with his accounting books open. Moving dollars and cents. Counting zeros and ones. No. Just like the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord's pierced hands in His side. So also, the assurance that we are right with God, folks, that needs to lead to joy. The great announcement has been made. The war is over. Peace has been declared. And you are safe at home. Let's pray. Father, may we, day in and day out, week in and week out, 
over the course of our life be brought face to face again and again with this unique message of the church. Father, may this church be a prophetic voice not only in our culture that needs to be confronted and shown the beauty of Christ's work for them, but also in our own hearts when we wander and when we stray. Oh God, set Jesus before us every day so that we can find in him all of our hope, all of our righteousness, and all of our satisfaction for this life and the life to come. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.